I've got this neighbor, nice guy. I've just been getting to know him, even though we've been neighbors for ages. We did a few years of small talk over shoveling, hand waves as we pulled out our trash cans on Tuesday nights. Then a few months ago, I ran into him picking up a pizza from the place we both agree is the best in town, and we actually got talking. Turns out we have some things in common. We grew up in the same part of the country, came to Boston for work. We're even both in technology. Both have kids, families. I mentioned our church, you know, feeling it out, and he gave me this kind of、uh, blank look. I gathered they're not church people, but that's cool. A couple weeks later, we had a barbecue with some families from our life community, and my wife invited them. Seemed like they had fun, but <sighs> life. We didn't connect again after that. Until this week, I ran into him at the grocery store late on a weeknight. He had a cart full of Gatorade, crackers, soup. Who's sick? I asked, and his face got dark. My wife, he said, and I could tell he didn't mean the flu. Something was wrong. Oh,、um, sorry, I said. <sighs> Then we stood in the checkout line, in this awkward silence. Should I ask? Was it something bad? He would have told me if he wanted me to know, right? Should I change the subject? Hey, the socks aren't a tear, huh? I said. Yeah, he agreed. They are. We paid, and we left. And I couldn't help thinking I'd missed an opportunity. For what? I don't know. I prayed after I got in my car. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe his wife just ate some bad takeout. But I couldn't shake the sense that God was bringing this neighbor to my attention. Maybe I could help somehow. And a week went by. I looked. It didn't seem like they were around very much. I'm not sure what to do. I got this neighbor and lives right down the road. You know how it is these days. Every fence might as well be its own country.、Uh, until we bumped into each other at、um, at Frank's, the best pizza in the world, by the way, and we we began to talk. He and his wife、uh, in, invited us to their their place for a cookout with some of their the people from their church. Nice people. They. Prayed for the cheeseburgers. <laughs> it, it wasn't a prayer, one a, a prayer that I was familiar with.、Uh, I never learned the barbecue prayer growing up. <laughs> But and we're not we're not especially religious these days. But nice people. If things were less busy, I, I'd, I'd ask them, "Do you want to, you know, go out sometime, have a drink, maybe catch a game, talk life." But life for us it, it took a turn about a month ago.、Uh, you know, one of these things, 
you never think's going to happen to you. But my wife, she hadn't been feeling good lately, and she went to the doctor, and they ran some tests, and they're still doing tests. Well, she's uh, not well, and life is not normal right now. I, I, I could use someone to talk to. And we could use some, some, some help. I mean, groceries, uh, uh, some meals, uh, rides for the kids, a, a home that the kids could go to after school. And we know some people, but I, I keep thinking of that neighbor. You know, they live so close, they seem so friendly, real. Like you can talk about the hard stuff. I bumped into him again just the other night at the grocery store, and I almost told him. But I didn't want to burden him, complain. I didn't want him to think that I was, was going to ask for something or that I wanted sympathy. So I, I didn't say anything. Back in the car, I couldn't help but thinking I'd missed an opportunity. For what? I, I don't know. Everyone's busy. People's lives, they're full. But when something happens, it, you ask yourself, who are my neighbors? Well, I've had kind of an interesting week. On Thursday night this week, Karen and I went to the U2 concert at TD Garden. <laughs> and found out it was all about love. The opening song was a plaintive ballad solo by Bono, Love is All We Have Left. The centerpiece of the evening was a raucous, wailing rendition of In the Name of Love. And the penultimate song that was sending us out the door, love is bigger than anything. It was all about love. Then on last night, we went to see the new Mr. Rogers movie, <laughs> Won't You Be Their Neighbor? And once again, it was all about love. The greatest thing we can do, Fred Rogers said, is to help people know they are loved and capable of loving all about love. And you can hardly think of two people more unlike each other than Mr. Rogers and Bono. <laughs> and yet they're two of the most iconic, influential figures of our time. They're both preaching the same message. It's all about love. And they both, not coincidentally, are followers of Jesus, who long ago said that the single most important thing human beings can do is to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. And that's what this series has been all about. So far this spring, we have learned that neighbors love each other. Neighbors know each other. Neighbors enjoy each other. Neighbors talk to each other. I think we've been surprised at how 
how simple and how practical loving our neighbors can actually be. And many of you have shared stories with me of these remarkable conversations and encounters you've had with neighbors over the past couple of weeks as we've been praying and speaking into these things. But so far, we haven't really talked about the tough part. Our bumper video just reminded us that some neighbors are harder to love than others. In fact, I had a conversation with someone this week who said, you haven't yet talked about the nightmare neighbor. <laughs> Maybe the one whose dog messes your lawn, the one who yells at your kids, the one who parks his RV right alongside your garden. We handed out a map early in this series, a little neighborhood grid to help you figure out who's in your neighborhood, who are the people that God's calling to your attention. Chances are there are some difficult people there. And as our drama just, success, just suggested, uh, being a neighbor can be awkward sometimes. It can be risky. You're never really sure what, how it might be received and what it might be getting you into. So as we finish up our series here and send ourselves off into the summer with all fired up to reach out to people around us, let's talk one last time about the dark side of neighboring about the nightmare neighbors and the scary scenarios. And let's ask ourselves this question, what does Jesus really expect of us when it comes to this neighboring thing? And what can we expect if we neighbor well? And to answer that question, we're going to go to one of the most familiar and unsettling stories Jesus ever told, the Good Samaritan, and it's found in Luke chapter 10. Now, before we jump into our text for the morning, I should take a quick moment just to tell you about a couple things happening this summer. First of all, if you're watching online or one of our campuses and you're wondering why we have a tiki hut and a waterfall on the platform, it's because this week, Kids Week begins here in Lexington, shipwrecked, sh uh, rescued by Jesus. And so we're looking forward to having hundreds of kids and families involved with us this week here in Lexington and then later this summer in Wilmington and Foxborough. And as we look to the month of July, it turns out I'm going to be away for a good part of that month doing some speaking and also some vacation time. Next week, I'll be speaking up at Camp of the Woods for the week, so looking forward to that. And then a little later in the month, I'm actually going to Singapore for a follow-up meeting with Kim Jong-un. <laughs> not really. It's not quite that important, but nearly. Uh, I'll be speaking at a pastor's conference there that I'm really excited about. So, but meanwhile, back here in, in, uh, at Grace, uh, Pastor Tom from Wilmington is going to be leading us through a, uh, our next July sermon series, and we're calling it The Chase. And it's all about happiness and contentment and why and how it eludes us. So it's going to be a good month around here. But let's get back now to the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here we have this very learned man who approaches Jesus with a very provocative question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, first of all, how very personal this question is. It's not what must a person do, what must I do? This is not just a legal debate or an academic exercise. This man is thinking about his life and his destiny. And when he talks about eternal life, 
We hear that word eternal life and we right away think of heaven, what happens after we die. It's not really what the word meant. Eternal life was, was the life of the kingdom. It was life with God, life as it was meant to be lived. And so this man isn't really asking, what must I do to go to heaven? He's asking, what must I do to experience life in all of its fullness? So good question. But in typical fashion, Jesus doesn't answer it. He turns the question back on the questioner. What do you think, he says. And the man gives a really good answer. Love God and love your neighbor. So he's either super smart or he's heard Jesus give this talk before, which is probably what had happened. Jesus plays along. Well said, he replies. Do this and you will live. But this man's no dummy. He knows how hard this is, loving God and loving neighbors. And so like every good attorney, he asks for some clarification. And who is my neighbor, he says. He wants to know exactly what's required of him. And so in a roundabout way, he's asking the very same question we're asking today. What exactly does Jesus expect of us when it comes to loving our neighbors? But again, typical fashion, Jesus doesn't answer. He tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So this unidentified man is traveling down the Jericho road. Now, this is a 17-mile stretch of road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was a notoriously difficult road because it was so steep and notoriously dangerous because it was so remote. Lots of places for bad people to hide and bad things to happen. And sure enough, this man is set upon by thieves. He's beaten, stripped, robbed, and left for dead. Now, it happens that a priest and then a Levite come along the very same road. That wasn't actually very surprising because it turns out that Jericho is a kind of bedroom community for people who do business in Jerusalem. And so many of the priests and Levites who served the temple had a home in Jericho. And so here we have these, these God-fearing men, these spiritual leaders, returning home after serving God and his people in the temple and yet when they come upon a man in obvious need, they pass him by. They decide not to stop. In fact, Jesus tells us it's very clear they intentionally went out of their way, crossing to the other side and passing him by. So what's going on? Why would they do that? What would keep them from stopping and to help a man who's in obvious need? Well, a couple things are going on. For one thing, they're, they're on their way somewhere. No one just went for a stroll on the Jericho Road. The same way no one just goes for a ride on the Mass Pike. <laughs> if you're on one of those roads, you're going somewhere and you want to get there as fast as you can. So these men, they're headed home too. They have people waiting for them and responsibilities. They've got a six, and a half, a six or seven hour journey ahead of them. So they're feeling the time pressure. And for another thing, there's all sorts of risks and uncertainties here. Who is this man? What happened to him, and why is he in such bad shape? If he's dead already, they could contaminate themselves, make themselves unclean by coming in contact with him. They'd have to go all the way back to Jerusalem to be purified. 
And if he wasn't dead, but badly hurt, well, now what are they supposed to do? They're not doctors. They're supposed to carry this man all the way down to Jericho. And then what? They're stuck with caring for him for how long? Not to mention the fact that the bandits who beat up this guy could be right over the hill waiting for the next poor slob to come along and help this guy. They could be the next victims. So these men had some reasons for not stopping, for passing by. So before we're too hard on them, let's acknowledge the fact that sometimes we do the very same thing for some of the same reasons. The first reason I'm going to call the time trap. One of the things that keeps us from getting involved with our neighbors. I mean, we all like the idea of knowing our neighbors and enjoying our neighbors and talking to our neighbors. How did Adam put it a few weeks ago? Party like Jesus. Sounds wonderful. But the truth is, our lives are full. We don't have a lot of extra hours in the day. Most of us aren't sauntering through the neighborhood looking for something to do and someone to hang around with. We've got work and school and family and home improvements and hobbies and vacations. And if you add church on top of that, our, there's not a lot of margin in our lives to get involved with other people, especially if they have problems. The time, the time trap. Some of you remember a story I told a lot of years ago about a race I was running in once. It was a local five-mile race. Lots of folks from town ran, and I'd been running in it for years. First couple of miles of the race went really well. In fact, as I checked my watch, I was on pace to beat my personal best for that race. About halfway through the race, as we came over the crest of a hill, a woman who was running in front of me suddenly stumbled and fell to the pavement with a crack. Now, I was behind her. So I was going to be the first one to get to her. But I had just enough time to think about what I was going to do. So my first thought was, I should stop and, and see if she's okay, help her on her feet, or maybe get out of the way. My second thought was, I'm on a really good pace here. <laughs> if I stop, I could blow my chance for a personal best. I began saying to myself, you know, there's volunteers that are out here to do just this sort of thing, and there's runners behind me, and they don't probably care about their time as much as I do. And Well, suddenly, I'm right there, and I have to make a decision. So what do you think I did? <laughs> Went right around her, kept on going. Quick glance over my shoulder to see if someone else helped, which they did, and then a look at my watch to see how I was doing. Now, I don't know what you think about me at this point, okay? <laughs> Some of the runners might be sympathetic. I mean, it's a race after all. But some of you might be disappointed in your pastor. What I do know is that it reveals something about me, something that's true about me, maybe too often. That in my rush through life to get to the next thing, to do the next thing, I might blow right past people the Lord's calling to my attention, that I might miss opportunities, that I might pass by people who could be my neighbor. And if it's true of me, I imagine it could be true of you as well. The time trap can keep us from reaching our neighbors. Are we willing to slow down a little bit as we make our way through the neighborhood or, or the grocery store or, or the hallways at school or the office to make eye contact? 
Are we willing to create some margin in our lives by saying no to some things? No, no to some good things. No to some things we want to do. No to some church things so that we have some space for other people God might bring our way. The time trap. The second thing that often keeps us from neighboring well is the fear factor. We're afraid we might offend someone. We might get in over our heads a question we can't answer or, or a, a problem that's just overwhelming. We're afraid we might ruin our reputation or our popularity, our career path maybe, if, if people find out we're so religious or, or weird. You can see the fear factor at work in our drama. The church guy was afraid it might feel like prying if he asked another question about the wife's health. Would it seem weird to offer to help or to pray? And what if she was really sick? Well, then what would he say? And then what would he do? And the other guy was afraid too, afraid to reveal what was really going on in his life, to look needy and vulnerable. What if people started talking about them in the neighborhood? This neighboring thing can be really difficult and daunting. There's the time track and the trap and the fear factor. So what does Jesus really expect from us when it comes to loving our neighbors? He still hasn't answered the question. So let's continue with the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, one thing it helps to know about parables is that they always have a surprise, some unexpected twist that points us to the main point of the story. And in this case, the surprise is this third person. Scholars tell us there were three classes of people who served in the temple. There were priests, and then Levites, and then lay leaders, deacons or elders, we'd probably call them. And so as the listeners heard this story unfold, they would have expected this third person, after the priest and the Levite, this third person would have been a lay leader in the church. And they would have gotten it. Jesus would have been rebuking the hypocritical religious leaders of the day. And everybody would have gotten a kick out of that story. I mean, who doesn't love making fun of the clergy? They're easy targets. <laughs> but Jesus changes it up. Not only is this third person not a religious leader, he's not even Jewish. He's a hated Samaritan, a bad guy, an outsider. Last person in the world a Jewish audience would look to for kindness and help. And yet, look what he does. And notice here how Jesus pours on the details to emphasize the extent of this man's kindness. Like the other two, he saw the wounded man. But unlike the other two, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, both of them costly. He put the man on his own donkey, meaning he would now walk. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him overnight. And then he paid in advance for two weeks' worth of food and lodging. This man gave his, his, his oil, his wine, his food. He gave his time, his energy, and his money to care for this man. And 
Let's remember, he had the same reasons for not getting involved these other men did. I mean, he surely had places he needed to go, people waiting for him. He felt the time pressure. And he was just as much in danger from bandits as they were. And on top of all this, he's got another reason to be afraid. He's a Samaritan in Jewish territory. And here he comes riding into town with a beaten and bloody Jew on the back of his donkey. Now, how is that going to look? Some scholars suggest that this Samaritan actually risked his life by spending the night in that town. We might imagine a modern-day Palestinian driving into an Israeli settlement and dragging out of his car a bloody Israeli soldier and hauling him into a roadside motel. Now, what are the chances that the locals are going to think that Palestinian is being kind and helpful? What are the chances they storm the hotel that night to drag that guy out and find out what's really going on? It turns out that neighboring is risky business. Neighbors don't just know each other and enjoy each other and talk to each other. Neighbors take risks with each other. According to Jesus, loving our neighbors, even our difficult neighbors, means getting involved. It means reaching out. It means serving and helping and making sacrifices and taking chances. It means asking the next question. It means walking across the, the street or, or the hallway or the room to approach someone who looks different from you. It might mean knocking on someone's door with a meal or an invitation. It might mean asking someone's help, allowing yourself to be the needy and vulnerable one. It might mean offering to pray or telling a little bit of your story or inviting someone to church. All of these things feel risky. We don't know where they might lead. Now, a couple of caveats here. First of all, notice what the man didn't do. He didn't take the man home with him. He didn't buy him a donkey or give him a job. He didn't invite him to his daughter's wedding. Okay, the point is, not everybody can be your best friend. There certainly are limits and boundaries to the numbers of people we can actually be involved with. And in the end, we can't fix everybody's problems. We can't rescue them. And secondly, we do these things in response to the Spirit's prompting. Because once again, there are a lot of people in our lives. We, we can't be friends or even neighbors perhaps to all of them, but we can be neighbors to any of them, the ones the Lord calls to our attention, prompting us to do something. So when we see a need and when we sense the Spirit's prompting, we reach out. We ask the next question. We extend an invitation. We ask for or offer some help even when it's risky. The neighbors in the drama didn't do that. The church guy was too afraid to ask the next question or offer to pray. And the other guy was too afraid to admit what was really happening in his life. And so they both missed opportunities. And I wonder how many opportunities you and I miss as we make our way through the day, hampered by the time trap and the fear factor. So as we head into this summer season, all fired up for neighboring, let's be willing to take some risks. 
to get involved, to ask the next question, to offer help, to extend an invitation, even if it costs us something, even if we're not sure where it might lead. And the folks who are heading out on our cross-cultural learning experiences, our mission trips this summer, they're, they're doing that. It's costing them something to go. They're giving up a week or, or more of their vacation, of their summer, not to mention all the time they've been preparing to go. Some of them are investing many of their own funds to be able to support their trip. They're heading to places that are unfamiliar and uncomfortable for them, where they become the vulnerable ones, the needy ones. They may be asked to do things they've never done before, to, to, to pound nails or to teach a lesson or to, to tell their story or to have a conversation with someone who speaks another language. They might be asked to eat things they've never eaten before. They're traveling long distances. Going on a mission trip is risky business, but it's also good neighboring. And as long as we're talking about neighbors, we haven't yet talked about our neighbors to the south. And I'm thinking, of course, of Mexico and the folks that are gathered along the border there. Now, I'm not going to offer a lot of political commentary because there's been more than enough of that. I think we all understand it's a very complicated situation without easy answers. I think we all understand we have to have a certain amount of control over who comes into the country and how they come in. At the same time, I think we all understand that many of these people are desperate. They're running for their lives from violence or poverty. Sometimes desperate people do desperate things, reckless things, sometimes illegal things. At the same time, we know that there are people waiting patiently to enter the country legally and properly, and, and we certainly want to be fair to them as well. And so it's not a simple situation with easy answers. It's risky even to bring it up. But they're our neighbors, and Jesus wants us to love them. So we've come to understand that separating those children from their families is probably not a good idea. But now we have all these families and all these children that need to be reunited, thousands of them. If you'd like to do something about that and not just talk about it, our partners, World Relief, have set up a family reunification fund. And everything you give to this fund will go towards helping to find, reconnect, and resettle these families in safe places. Now, the, this is a group that we can trust. They have boots on the ground. They know what they're doing. They are doing good in Jesus' name. So you can give there. And you can pray for what's happening there. You can pray for our government. You can pray for those serving these families. You can, you can pray for the families and children themselves. You can advocate if the Lord puts that on your heart. So there are certain things you can do. But as concerned as we are for these children and families, let's not forget there are children and families at risk all around us, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our city, in our church. When Jesus says to love our neighbors, these are people he's calling to our attention and within our sphere of influence. There's only so much we can do for families at the border. There's a lot we can do for children and families all around us. If God is using this incident to awaken your heart for children and families, Know that there are thousands of children right now in Massachusetts 
waiting for foster care or adoptive homes. If God is stirring your heart about this, recognize that there are immigrant families and refugee families probably in your neighborhood, certainly in your community. If God's stirring your heart, understand there are children and teenagers with family at risk right here in our church. And you can do something about that by investing in them, by serving them and coming alongside. All these things are costly and risky and unpredictable. But if you'd like to know more about them, we have grassroots ministries here at Grace, two of them that focus on these kinds of things. And you can go right to grace slash grassroots and find out about these two. Home for Good is involved with foster and adoptive care uh, in our communities. And then Reach is involved with refugee and immigrant families. You can get involved at whatever level you're comfortable with and maybe a level you're not comfortable with because that's what neighbors do. Well, for most of us, neighboring well is going to be a lot more ordinary and closer to home than that. So let me finish up with a story from one of our Grace Chapel folks and then we'll kind of tie the whole thing together. Let me tell you the story in her words. On Saturday, we had a family beach day. As you do with a toddler, we spent a decent part of our visit walking up and down the beach to and from the bathrooms. Each time, we noticed a little family, a man, a woman, and a baby, and we would smile at them because we remembered our daughter being that age. At one point, the woman and the baby were playing near us, so I kind of wandered back that way and started a conversation. The basic stuff. How old is the baby? What do you do for a living? Where'd you get your bathing suit? We kept chatting and found a few similarities. Like us, they had moved out from the city when they had their baby. She said they'd hoped to live in our neighborhood, wanted to live in our town. I told her the house across the street from us was actually about to be listed if she was interested. I wondered if, if this was too forward. We just met and you want me to move in across the street? <laughs> Before we left, I went over to say goodbye and said, why don't you give me your number? I can let you know when the house goes up for sale. She said that would be great. So on Monday, I texted her to let her know the house had been listed. She responded, we really need to wait at least a year. I haven't worked since our son was born, but returned to work in the fall. Once we save some money, we'll be ready. Well, to me, the interesting part of her response was about going back to work with the baby, since I'd gone through that myself. But was it my business? I hesitated. Would she think I was being too personal? I decided to go with it. I got you, she said. How are you feeling about going back to work? To my surprise, she responded very honestly. Mixed, she said. It will be good for both of us, but many tears will be shed. I dove in. I shared how I had gotten through the transition and promised her she'd get through it too. I added that by the fall, we would be proper friends and not just strangers on the beach, and she could add me to her list of friends for support. Then to my surprise, she took the next step. She shared a few things she was nervous about. Each time I offered support, I worried she might think I was assuming too much of this friendship. But each time she took it and kept the conversation going with more questions. After an hour of texting, we ended the conversation with a plan to make a play date with the kids. I couldn't be more grateful for the prompting to ask her how she was feeling. The fact that she had answered honestly and asked questions makes me think she needed the support. But really, don't we all actually need each other's support? We're just too timid sometimes to ask for it or to offer it, tiptoeing around what we might feel is too invasive. It wasn't a spiritual conversation, but it was an honest one 
and a neighboring one, and who knows where it might lead. Friends, this is what it means to love our neighbors. It means noticing people. It means having some conversation, enjoying being around them. It's as simple as that. But it's as risky as asking the next question, as reaching out to a stranger, as sharing a little bit of your story. But look where it can lead to connection, to friendship, to encouragement. A family day at the beach becomes a remarkable opportunity that can change the course of two people's lives. Friends, it leads to life. It leads to life in all of its fullness, life of significance and purpose and satisfaction and meaning. This is the answer to this man's questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, and you will live. You will live life to the full. What does Jesus expect from us? He expects us to take risks and trust him with the outcome. Take risks and trust him with the outcome. This good Samaritan has no idea what's going to happen to the man after that, but he was a good neighbor that day. And this woman has no idea what's going to happen with this friend she's just met, but that's not her problem. Take risks and trust God with the outcome. So as we head out into the summer season, all fired up to reach out to our neighbors, Let's take some risks. Let's be willing to get involved. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our hearts and to keep them wide open. And let's be prayerful and let's be sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And when an opportunity presents itself, let's not miss the opportunity. Let's Take a risk, because you never know where it might lead. It might just lead to life in all its fullness for you and your neighbor. May it be so. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this challenging story, this hopeful story. Thank you for this simple but profound call on our lives how very different our summers can be if we practice loving our neighbors as you have taught us to. So Lord, we will trust you to open doors, open hearts, open our eyes and ears. Lead us into life full and satisfying, life that's not only good for us, but good for those around us, good for the world. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen.